This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Baffling Puzzle, and the author, Luther Lloyd, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Luther. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Great to have you with us, and this book, this fictional book, this novel, but at the same time, your novel is focused on, as you write this, on uncovering and exposing Muslim activities in the U.S. and overseas by two exceptional U.S. agents. So again, it's a novel, but it's also, you're trying to teach about Islam, about Muslim activities, about jihadists. Uh, So in the process, the reader is informed as to the dangers of Islam in our country. Before we get into talking about these dangers, Luther, which a lot of people I don't believe understand because they've heard uh, a different line from the administration and the mainstream media is not uh, talking about it. Tell us about your background, how you came to understand the things that you are teaching in, this is your second book, it's a sequel to a book called Out of Darkness, uh, this book called, uh, titled Baffling Puzzle. Tell, tell us about your background, Luther. Well, I, I was a career military officer, and uh, I applied for a particular program uh, that they offered years ago called the Foreign Area Specialist Training Program. And the object was to take young military officers and send them into uh, certain areas of the world uh, and to train them in the politics, economics, religion, social uh, social aspects of those cultural areas and then have those officers later uh, serve there. And uh, in the process, I went to the American University in Beirut, Lebanon, and got a master's degree under the auspices of our, our government and subsequently served in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, and uh, in uh, DIA in Washington, the Defense Intelligence Agency, Central Command, uh, here in Florida. And uh, so we had all in all about, uh, not quite half of my career was involved in the Middle East and in things pertaining uh, from a national security strategy or uh, involvement, I should say, in the Middle East, and I was involved in that. You say that Islam is not just a religion. Then what is it? Well, to me, Steve, it's a a combination. It has a religious orientation. You have the um, part of it, but the real part of it and the real impact on us is the fact that it's also political. And Islam uh, is used uh, to foster the political side, which is the Sharia law and the other aspects um, that really drive the governments of the Middle East and any country that is a Muslim country and declares that. It's, um, it's very uh, totalitarian in its structure. And uh, we in the United States, unfortunately, we sit here, we don't really get into the study of Islam. And we allow um, cultural experts, if you will, or Muslims, to tell us what it's all about. And unfortunately, in that telling, we, they leave things out that we need to know about. And uh, that's the part of my book that I'm trying to get across, that we need to study Islam, we need to know the ideology, we need to know what they're saying, political, particularly the political aspects of it. Because if you, if you look at it simply as a religion, then, and you think of it in terms of Christianity and Buddhism or, or any of the other religions, you're at a disadvantage because <laughs> that's just the religious part. And in our society, we separate our, uh, our government from our faith. But in this 
in the Islamic society, it's tied together as one, and it's theocratic and very dictatorial, uh, from my standpoint anyway. And there are just a lot of dangers, and this definitely goes against our Constitution. I mean, uh, we are for equal rights and freedom of speech, liberty, and all these things, but within Islam itself, those are all constrained philosophies. And uh, that's a very unfortunate thing, and that's the point I, I'm trying to get or get across in the stories I tell and in the basic thrust of the document. I would also comment just for you that um, when I was in school, I, I didn't care for those academic tomes, you know, that I had to sit and read about things. Yeah, I learned a lot, but it wasn't my, it really wasn't what my heart was. And I, I like to get my my knowledge from different sources, of course, and one of them was just, that's why I wrote the novel as opposed to an academic tome. There are plenty of those out there, and particularly in recent years, uh, there are many good writers and good texts on Islam. We just need to read them, and particularly our, our governmental officials. Our government officials don't seem to understand, and that's why this book or books like it are so important. Tell us about Sam, one of the main characters. Uh, again, everyone, this is fiction, but it is based on reality of what Islam is. So tell us about Sam. Well, Sam is just one of those uh, young old guys that has been around for a long time. He attended the American University in Beirut. Um, he met a lot of friends and, and had them throughout his lifetime, and he, he interacts with them even today. He's used by the government to talk to them, to, to uh, uh, you know, discuss serious things with them. Uh, they don't all agree with him. In fact, some of them are very much on the opposite side uh, in terms of the, the ideological struggle we have today. But <clears throat> he still, because of his friendship with them, he's able to uh, talk to him, talk to them, and. He also was able to educate uh, his young friend, Rick Austin, uh, about the things of Islam that need to really be looked, up, looked at. Um, he's a good Christian. Uh, my, whole, my books, in fact, come from a Christian perspective. I am not an apologist for Islam um, at all. There are plenty of those running around in the United States today in academia and in our government, and uh, uh, I think the thing that really comes, I try to put forth in my novel, is that Islam is diametrically opposed to anything of Christianity, and uh, the propaganda line is, yes, we all come from the same God, we all, all are of one, there's only one God, and of course, we believe in a monotheistic religion, as does Islam, uh, but the, the gods are different. You know, uh, the Christian God is a compassionate God. He, he is there to help us achieve care and, and be servants in this world. Allah never came to this, this earth, and uh, only Muhammad was able to interact with Allah. So, you know, back in the old days in England, People like Prime Minister Churchill used to call Islam Mohammedism because of the fact it was only Muhammad that was speaking, saying that Allah, he represented Allah and Allah's victims upon this earth. And, uh, of course, I, I'm sure no Muslim wants to hear that, but that's the way it was back in those days. And... But the Allah that is in the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah is an intellectual Allah that you can you can know intellectually, but you can't know him personally. Christianity, we can know Christ personally. We can have a relationship with him. He came, and he did those things for us to to show us the way and the light. Uh, and and of course, um, he. He's not for killing, whereas 
Islam, unfortunately, in terms of evangelism, uh, is not unopposed to violence. And we see that every day. Uh, it's happening right now in this world. And it, it's just absolutely crushing to me that people do not see and do not understand and do not study to find out what is driving all this and what we need to be attacking. Our strategic enemy is uh, Islam, the ideologies of Islam. It's not just a tactical enemy on the battlefield, but that's where our focus is. We, we go fight, and our military leaders are focused there, and rightly so, because you have to defeat your enemy. But at the same time, it's the ideas behind them that causes the greatest problems. And those ideas come out of Islam. They do not come out of any other factor that uh, I can think of. And that's why you have suicide bombers that are interested, uh, have those beliefs of Islam, which say go forth and kill and master your enemies, destroy your enemies. Uh, and that is that is part of our problem. Yeah, commit suicide and destroy your enemies, which certainly is nothing like Christianity. No, sir. Uh, it really isn't, and I, I'm sorry, I sometimes get a little bit talkative on No, no point, problem, Luther. The one thing I, I think we need to point out, too, is and most people don't know history. They don't really understand what Muhammad was all about. But he, went off, he went off to conquer the world, to put it under Sharia law. Absolutely, and uh, most recently you've had the ISIL uh, uh, development and mm -hmm. uh, in Syria and what is happening there. Uh, these gentlemen have declared the caliphate. Uh, again, they're trying to reestablish, as is the Muslim Brotherhood and all the Islamic is Islamists, I should say, the more radical parts of it, the more doctrinally... Um, astute parts of it uh, in our world today. And Isil and uh, Isis, uh, that is the essence of, of uh, Islam as they strive to reestablish the caliphate. And of course, everybody's got a hand in there, and everybody has a, a different idea how to do it, but right. the ones we're facing are the ones that are really the dangerous ones. And you've mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, and we have members of the Muslim Brotherhood right in the inner circle of President Obama. Yes. And, and the thing that strikes me about that, you know, that's why I titled my book the way I did, Baffling Puzzle. Because I can't, I really have a great deal of trouble um, with the fact that our administration has been so nice to the Muslims and permitted them to be legitimized in the United States. They've gone out of their way to do that. And in the Muslim Brotherhood, the motto of the Brotherhood, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but just for those listening, the motto of the Brotherhood is, quote, Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, the Quran is our law, jihad is our way, and dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. Um, and, it, you know, the Muslim, the way he's trained and brought up, owes his allegiance to his faith, to, uh, to Islam. And uh, so that goes across the board. If you're a Muslim, you know, that's wonderful. Islam does not believe in <clears throat> do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Islam divides humanity into uh, the Dar al-Islam, or the, uh, the House of Submission, which are Muslims, and Dar al-Harb, which is the House of War. And that's all of us, the infidels, the non-believing Muslims. And uh, I'm saying non-believing people who are not Muslims is the way I need to say that. And uh, so, you know, the whole structure is based on conflict. Now, please understand that when Islam is weak, when Islam does not have uh, the ability to go forth, 
and to do what is being done today. It sits on the sideline, it moves quietly, and it does not go into this violent uh, business that we're into. Well, it's only a small percentage of Muslims who follow the Muhammad in, in the Quran to, uh, in its totality. Uh, most Muslims, as we know, and you've worked with them, and I've been around them, went, my kids went to school with them. I mean, they're peace-loving folks just like you and I, and they just want to take care of their families and enjoy life. That's correct, yeah. And I agree that, with that. I, I, I've had Muslim friends in the past, and uh, I have enjoyed them, and I hope that they have enjoyed me. Uh, and so uh, the, the bottom line on that uh, is that we, we can be friendly infidels. And, right. and, I, and, I, and we are infidels, and we will always be infidels, mm -hmm. no matter the situation, because we're not Muslims. Mm -hmm. But to try to appease these people who are the radicals, and as you well know, you know, in government, in, in philosophies, you don't need 100% of the people. You only need 20% of the people who are active and are in the right place, and you change a government. Right. You can change the... Well, think of, uh, think of Hitler during World War II, or prior to World War II, and, and his regime, the communist regime. Not everybody's a communist in those countries. Not everybody was a Nazi, as we found out afterwards. But those that were in power and in control led the others to the destructions of those uh, two regimes in the past. And, uh, and the same thing can happen with Islam. And it is happening. Because, yes, 20%, you know, 10%, people give me estimates as to how many Muslims there are, uh, radical Muslims. Uh, there, there are jihadists in, mm -hmm. currently, and they will say 10%. Well, do you know what 10% of the Muslims of the world is? It's, it amounts to about 120 million. That's yeah, a huge number, huge number, and that's what, uh, there is great danger because of that in the United States, and it's because of folks like you, Luther, that publish books and speak out uh, that we can learn what... Islam is really all about, and we appreciate you uh, being on this show to explain your book, Baffling Puzzle. Luther Lloyd, we've been listening to him, and uh, what's the best way to get your book, Luther? Well, you can go on Amazon.com, and, and uh, it, they sell it, and also AuthorHouse.com. Uh, AuthorHouse is the publisher of my book, and you can go directly to them and, and receive the book there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Author Talk. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great speaking with you, and uh, I really appreciate it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Shamrock 22, an aviator story, and the author is Colonel Richard Hudlow, and Rick joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Rick. Hello. Great to have you with us, and this is your memoir, uh, 
as you say, a collection of stories about people whom you've known, worked with, and flew with during your span of 80-plus years, and you're closing in on the big 9-0, aren't you? <laughs> That's right. Well, congratulations, and thank you so much for your service, and you started out at 18 years of age in World War II, and you went into the Army Flying Training System, and uh, that, though, wasn't the start of it. You grew up around airports. You didn't know anything else, did you? <laughs> no, that's where that's where my uh, heart was and, and intent. So as you look back, uh, how old were you? How old were you when you flew by yourself, soloed in a plane? The first solo was when I was in the army. I was I was eighteen. Eighteen, okay. But before that, yeah. you just hung around airports and got to go up in planes as a kid. Oh yeah, I flew with people uh, from the time I, before I could see out of the airplane. <laughs> I had to stand up to fly. <laughs> <laughs> so you, even though you didn't solo, you must have had your hands on on the controls that when you were very, very young. Indeed, indeed, I, I did, and uh, I, I felt very comfortable. Uh, but when I went to active duty, several of my aviation f friends, the older men that I'd flown with, and my father's contemporaries, really, would say to me, "Now, don't tell anybody in the army that you've got a lot of flying time." They said, "You know." There's a right way to do things and a wrong way, and there's an army way, and you've got to learn the army way. <laughs> got to learn the <laughs> army way. That was good way. advice, yeah. yeah. Real good advice. And, of course, we all have heard of the B-1 bomber, B-52s, B-47s, Strategic Air Command. We're going to talk about all of that as we relive some of uh, of this with you, Colonel. Uh, so, we go back to those early flying years in the army. Uh, back in uh, you were in France and Germany. Yes, I was. Uh, I was commissioned uh, in April of '45 as a lieutenant with one of my wings at Moody Field, Georgia, flying B-25s. And uh, very shortly after, I met my lady, the, and uh, we uh, and we knew we were going to get married. But I, at that time. <laughs> I didn't have a finished education. I didn't have uh, a career going, and I, I stayed in the army, and I was fortunate to, to be assigned overseas. And the, my everything for me broke just right with wonderful uh, mentors. And I write about the, those people. They were very, very material to my progress and uh, learning. And uh, uh, I was. Uh, offered because i was so young i was offered a regular commission in the army which i took which gave me a career career but uh so it was very interesting and i think exciting days so you came out of world war ii and then volunteered into the new jet bomber program tell us about what you were feeling and and what you were seeing as those things started to develop well uh i, I would I wanted to find a career path that, uh, that would give me uh, the aviation that I wanted. To, the, uh, you always want to be in the newer airplanes and that sort of thing. And, and I had uh, come back from Germany after with a lot of flying time for that era. I had flown, been over there just under three years, and I had uh, 3,700 hours of, of flying time. It was all great time, but in a C-47, which is a twin-engine transport. The Army had a, uh, a revenue airline set up in Europe right after the war for several years because there were no air, airline traffic. There was no way to, to travel and, and that sort of thing. And it was it was a great assignment, and I didn't want to be in transport necessarily. So I uh, came back in uh, the U.S., uh, and uh, I wasn't too keen about the assignment I had, so I volunteered into the B-47, which was coming. It was the new newest and most advanced airplane and fortunately got into that program and uh, it necessitated my going to school and being a rated navigator and going to the bombardier school as well there that was the requirement to be a pilot to be triple rated so that took about a year and a half and uh, that was the entry process for the b-47 program and i, I w was in the socket at strategic air command at the time but, uh, and that was the story about how it got going. Got going uh, in jet bombers with the B-47 and then eventually started 
flying B-52s, and you've flown a bunch of hours, maybe as many as anybody else or more. Uh, that's very true. And uh, I don't think anybody would ever have the opportunity to fly as much or need to nowadays because, first of all, we don't have airborne alert and, and uh, 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 people don't stay in a, in a job as long as we did of necessity. A trained crew and uh, we were on, I was on a combat crew, led a, a crew, uh, oh, uh, about 10 years, which is a, a large fraction of one's uh, career. Uh, they, I doubt that they'll have that much time. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a significant, not a lot of time when you compare it with airline pilots, but that's really all they do for the full career. But in the eight or 10 years that I was in the, in the uh, uh, crew business, I flew a lot. <laughs> right in the midst of what we call the Cold War, indeed. So you were on a just you were assigned as a, a part of a crew that was to respond just in case, as we know back then uh, we feared uh, nuclear war from from uh, Russia. Well, indeed, and and uh, the very wise decision was made to uh, build a force such that it would deter the Russians from making a first nuclear strike. We, if we had been able to convince the Russians that we would, not, we would not do the first strike, all of that effort wouldn't really have been necessary if we had felt that, that we could trust them. But we had to be a force so strong, and they had to know how strong it was, so we, we really didn't want to keep that a secret. Uh, we uh, knew when it got so bad that we had to go to airborne alert because of the uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. The flight time from detection to impact initially was 15 minutes, and well, you had to survive. Your force had to survive to be a deterrent, and so that meant putting them on ground alert, ready to go, and then so you could launch them and get them away from the target areas in time before the missiles came down. And then later, we had a five-minute flight time on the sub, uh, submarine launch uh, ICBMs of five minutes, and that, you know, that put us in the air. So we had a substantial 24-hour-a-day for almost 30 years airborne alert force in the air, and uh, that's how... That's how I got a lot of B-52 flying time. And there were times when, did you ever think that the real thing was happening? Indeed, indeed. We uh, uh, had one occasion in particular which is, gave us the uh, name of my book was Shamrock 22. That was our tactical call sign on this one particular mission. And uh, we uh, everything was going normal. My crew was operating. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, in May, and uh, we were uh, part of the route took us across various parts of the U.S. and then up north to the pole and across Alaska and home. But we were in the U.S. zone at the time, and uh, my EW, my electronic warfare officer, who's one of his jobs was to uh, monitor the uh, high-frequency single sideband radio on which we would be executed, and we had all the constant communications with the SAC headquarters and the National Command Authority. So he said to me, Pilot, you better listen to the HF radio. Uh, SAC has called and said, uh, for all airborne alert aircraft, there will be a roll call in, in five minutes that answer with your tactical call signs. I said, oh, man, what is this, you know? It wasn't in the book. Mm. And then no, nothing that wasn't planned in, in the book in the nuclear world happened it was that structured and it had to be so here came five minutes later and the uh, command post started calling off the na the numbers tactical call signs of the airborne alert force and you heard these voices answer with theirs they said shamrock 22 and i had to swallow real hard and i said back shamrock 22 and so we knew and the russians knew we were there, and uh, I think the message to them for them doing that, it seemed on like on an ad hoc basis, was, hey, Soviets, don't do anything dumb right now because these guys are going to come at you if you do. 
and we didn't know why this event was was happening. And they didn't tell us naturally until we landed, and it was the day that the U-2 was shot down east of Moscow, and uh, of course uh, that would be a destabilizing uh, effect in the very tenuous relationship that the countries had to start with. And uh, it, that uh, was a very wise thing to do, although the Russians knew we were there. But uh, to hear us, each of us say, here we are, you know. Right. It, uh, uh, hmm. it, but it, it was that kind of pressure. You know, we, we thought we were going to go to war that day. Mm, my and, goodness. And uh, Cuba was another very, very tense time. Right. And, uh, what about Vietnam? Where, where did you do there? I went out there to... Uh, yeah, we had a, a a managerial function in the planning of the uh, ArcLight and the tanker operation, which was codenamed code, code uh, Young Tiger. We had a team of uh, officers there, and we planned the uh, uh, B-52 strikes from uh, oh the pre-IP through bomb release and and withdrawal. Uh, we had a seat on the target panel, and we, we planned the, each mission for the next day. Uh, it was a 24-hour affair. Uh, that we, we did the uh, part of the mission over Vietnam in coordination with uh, uh, MACV, which is Military uh, uh, Assistance Vietnam, the headquarters. And we send them that bomb release and bomb run portion to Guam who did the whole mission plan and tied that in with airliners and other other operations and then they issued, they issued the operations order every day and we also did the two uh, operations orders which we did entirely uh, for the tanker effort which supported all of the tac, uh, tactical aircraft who needed to be refueled. We had quite a a refueling operation there at the time as well. So ours was really a managerial and, a, and an operational planning function. I would spend some time over in uh, Thailand with them at Utapau, which was the big bomber base. I flew missions over there with them and flew a lot in Vietnam in, in uh, T-39s. But so it was a very busy year. And SAC, or Strategic Air Command, wanted you to bring the B-1 bomber into their inventory. That You were the only officer with that kind of experience at the time. Well, that's what General Doherty told me, and I, uh, I was really very disappointed, although that was a, would have been a pretty key job, I believe. But I had planned for years and had studied. My wife and I had worked to... It was our ambition. We wanted to command a bomb wing, and uh, uh, I had uh, set my uh, heart on th- on that. And uh, there was no way they were going to back away from that assignment. And uh, we were going to retire in a couple of years anyway. And I said, we don't want to be in Omaha. Let's think a little bit here uh, of us instead of uh, the f- in the future. And so. Uh, we decided to retire, and uh, we did, and we've had a, an excellent business opportunity and uh, uh, another another complete career after we had uh, finished our Air Force career. But we were disappointed that, that we didn't get to do that. It had been our ambition, and my lady would have been a wonderful, wonderful uh, commander's wife. It, it was it, those were such great people in the bomb wings, the young lieutenants and their wives. And, mm. Captains, they uh, uh, she uh, took lessons from some lovely old army ladies that we met when when we were lieutenants mm-hmm. in Germany, and then in our assignment back here, she learned what it's like to be a colonel's lady, and and, and my lady would have been was a star, and uh, I, I used to love to watch her. Well, both of you are closing in on a remarkable life together, uh, almost 90 years of age, and you sound so young, and and uh, just thrilled that you wrote your book. And, you know, we're talking about not only success, a successful career, but patriotism, 
devotion to duty, family, and uh, obviously sharing all of your experiences with all your professionals as a B-52 combat crew. The title, Shamrock 22, An Aviator's Story, and we've been listening to Colonel Richard Hudlow. Colonel, what's the best way to get your book? Well, it's on uh, uh, the website of, uh, of uh, uh, Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon. Uh, various bookstores can do it. Uh, it's published by Author House. Uh, uh, this can be ordered uh, uh, from any, any bookstore. They, they all should have it. And uh, we'd uh, in, encourage people to read it. It's enjoyable and, uh, and factual as well. There are a lot of... Uh, Interesting and funny stories in there of things that happen in in the course of various uh, serious business things and with uh, uh, young uh, people uh, it's inevitable that uh, there's some chuckles in the book as well as some tears. Well, thank you so much, Colonel, for joining us on Author Talk. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, and it was good to have met you verbally. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book today is titled, No Time for Diets. Our author, L. Raines, M.S., R.D.N., C.D.E., whatever those designations are, and the author, joins me from California. Welcome, Linda, to the program. Good morning, Jay. This is a, uh, a long designation of uh, assigned uh, titles, MS, RDN, CDE. Could you explain for my listeners what all of those designations represent? Sure. Uh, MS is a Master of Science level. Um, RDN is a Registered Dietitian, Nutritionist, and CDE is a Certified Diabetes Educator. You've been busy in the uh, arena of food, as most of us are, but yours has a different purpose. What inspired you to put this particular book into print? Well, Jay, as a registered dietitian and nutritionist since 1973, I've been helping patients and clients learn how to eat healthy and make sure that they can manage their weight appropriately. I've counseled thousands of people who have so much misinformation about weight management. I felt that this book could help to dispel some of the myths that are out there and help steer people towards a a little bit more sane solution in their challenges with their own weight management. You have included a lot of chapters. It's not an extensive book, 145 pages, so an individual can pick and choose the topic that they probably need to focus on. Chapter 6, Workplace Wonders. Power on the job, self-monitor, and stimulus control. Now, food stimulus is one thing that most American eaters are challenged with. We have uh, we have commercials all the time. When I'm trying to control what I'm what my intake is, I'm I'm low sugar is what my uh, my goal is. And nearly every second commercial has a lot of tempting desserts and other things being broadcast on television. How do you counteract that with your with your uh, clients? Well, one of the things that we we try to focus on is is teaching people what how to read the labels and to give them an indication that carbohydrate, even though it's the uh, the prime fuel nutrient, that's our primary fuel nutrient. We 
don't necessarily need to eat all the refined carbohydrates. So fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grain breads and cereals are the ones that really need to be focused on. That's going to give us the energy without the uh, the spike in our blood glucose. So we want to kind of keep a, a nice even keel on that one. Uh, my wife has encountered some issues, and it seems to be a growing trend that there is some reaction to gluten in the diet, and uh, she has had some medical issues related to that. What are you finding? Well, gluten is the is the newest big hype. That's certain. There are uh, certainly people who have celiac brew and issues with gluten intolerance, but I think that if you focus more on increasing the fiber rather than um, and, and, and truly, gluten is, is part of a processed carbohydrate uh, because you, you develop the gluten when you need or you process the food. So it, it actually may have some basis, in fact, as far as the gluten intolerance. I don't think generally before we, were, we started making breads, there were, there were very many uh, products that had gluten in them. Uh, the, the the wheat products have been modified in the American diet, and uh, she feels like that might be the issue with her. She can eat uh, gluten-type products in Europe, and it doesn't bother her. If she eats something here, uh, she gets mm-hmm. the equivalent of an ulcerated pain in her stomach. So we have had some serious concerns about that. And she, after four or five years of trying to figure out what was going on, discovered that this probably was the issue. Mm-hmm. It, it may be it may be the gluten and it may be also linked to some of the foods that they the food additives that they use in processing. Right, right. Highly processed because foods. In, in Europe, they have a very much different idea on food supply. They are much more focused on less processing than we are in this country. Diabetes. What is your focus? What is your uh, observation of the rise in diabetes in the United States? So, well, I think that unfortunately, un- unfortunately for most of us, there is a problem with too many calories, and mm-hmm. and when you become overweight, you actually start to stimulate uh, problems with the pancreas, providing too much insulin to counteract all the uh, all the simple sugars. Body is is very focused on trying to keep our blood sugar within a, a healthy range. And if you are overloading it with sugars and cakes and candy and pies and everything that's highly processed, the pancreas has to work overtime. Um, the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas are what produce our insulin. And over time, if they're overstimulated, um, they're going to start to wear out. Uh, overweight is one of the one of the risk factors for developing diabetes. And some thin people also have been uh, susceptible to diabetes. That's, that's true. Well, there are two types of diabetes. Uh, type 1, which is an autoimmune deficiency, mm-hmm. and that is uh, focused when the, the pancreas just completely shuts down. It, um, it doesn't make any endogenous insulin. The, the type 2 diabetes, you make insulin, but you don't make enough of it or you don't make it fast enough. And that is that's generally associated with overweight. Many times type 1 diabetes, um, the, the patient is not overweight in any way. In fact, they may be underweight. But two different types of diabetes. Um, both are associated with um, you know, the risk factors for the pancreas not functioning properly. Linda, as you began writing this, who did you hope to reach with your message? Um, when I started writing it, I was basically writing to the people who were working that I was working with that they were underestimating their successes that they weren't giving themselves enough credit for what what successes they had done as I've continued to write over the years it's more focusing on the motivation and changing the habits that need to be changed and keeping the healthy habits so you know getting rid of the extra calories and keeping the good thoughts would you consider your book a motivational book rather than a uh, how-to to keep out of trouble? I think it's both. I think I, I, there's certainly a lot of, of of information about motivating yourself and making making uh, things turn around a little bit so that you can you can see 
that how how good you really are. And I think motivation is is key. But I also think that it gives some good information about nutrition and um, how to actually figure out how many calories you need and what to do about it, changing your environment. So, you know, don't leave the cookie jar on the table if you're trying to avoid extra calories. Boy, isn't that the truth? So I think it's kind of a little bit of both. And Thanksgiving is coming up. We have to be uh, on guard about safe snacks, uh, snacks that may satisfy our hunger needs but not overstimulate our other uh, fat-accumulating uh, parts of our, parts of our uh, I guess, our dietary system. That's really true, Jay. When when you look at um, hunger, there are really three types of hunger. It's there's physical hunger, which is that's when we should eat, and there's emotional hunger, which is well something didn't go right today, or uh, something didn't exactly turn out the way you wanted to. So let let me just have a candy bar and think about that. Mm-hmm. Or a situational hunger where you've got all the best intentions, but then the folks in the in the coffee room are going to, uh, they've brought in some donuts or they've brought in some extra leftover cake from a party over the weekend. And, and so that's a situation where you're sort of there and it's it looks good and that's really not, those are the times you need to not eat. You need to walk away and do, do something else maybe productive. <laughs> well, I when I'm out and, and uh, taking care of business, uh, running errands and that type of thing, I often will run out of uh, gas. I need, I need fuel in my body. And uh, the easiest thing to do is go to the closest fast food supplier. And that's a bad choice. But how do you avoid that? Meals in a rush, travel and restaurant management. How do you, how do you uh, focus on eating properly? Well, when you are rushing around, doing everything, if you can do a little pre-planning prior to, um, if you you know you're going to have a busy day, you can plan snacks. In Ziploc baggies are wonderful for taking snacks along, uh, something like uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, um, sliced uh, sliced cucumbers or, or carrot sticks, something that you can munch on and that will take the, the hunger edge away so that when you drive past that McDonald's or the Burger King and the smell is just overwhelming, you've, you've got another choice. It, the problem that we tend to have is that we don't pre-plan, and then all of a sudden, life hits us, mm-hmm. you know, and we say, oh, I've got to eat something. I haven't eaten anything all day, and then some folks are going out to the Cheesecake Factory, or not to malign the Cheesecake Factory, but some some place that you know you have to you have to deal with with life. That's the the pre-planning is probably the the thing that's going to give you the best chance for success. Oh, that's true. I uh, have been put on a eat grass diet. I think that's what my wife feeds me. I'm not sure. She puts it in a blender and <laughs> chews it all up and then hands it to me. It doesn't taste bad, but I will tell you this: for whatever reason, and uh, there may be two or three apples in there, there may be some spinach, there may be some other type of very healthy. Uh, organic vegetable that's been blended, I still come away from eating that as though I haven't eaten anything. Is that psychological or is there something else going on? Well, it depends on, depends on the nutrient density and the foods that you're eating. You can eat a lot of vegetables and fruits and not have a lot of calories, and you, you may actually have a calorie deficit. Um, the carbohydrates, breads, grains, um, they will provide you energy just like fruits and vegetables, but in a, a much smaller area. So you have a piece of bread, and you've got more calories if High you density. put some butter on that mm-hmm. than three cups of vegetables and fruits. What is your first personal favorite snack food that uh, you take when you're on the road? Oh, my first personal snack food is trail mix. Trail mix. Well, it has a lot of, a little bit of everything, complex carbohydrates well, and does, also the other. the nuts, you know, yeah. the nuts, and then it has the, it, it, you were even mentioning a little bit of sweetness in the dried fruit, and um, it's it's handy. I don't have to refrigerate it, and it's helpful. It's got so many nutrients in, in the nuts and the, and the uh, dried fruit. The only problem with dried fruit is that you can eat a lot of calories in just uh, a little bit of fruit because it's, you know, when you think of it, it's if you have a dried apple, you can take one apple and dry it, and it it 
very easy to fit in your hand, and you could probably eat three or four of those dried apples, whereas if you take a fresh apple, it'll take you a long time to eat three or four of them, and you'll probably get sick of eating them before you'll eat all three of them. Uh, good advice, a good tip. Linda, there's a lot of books in the marketplace dealing with diet. Why is yours different? Um, I believe my book, No Time for Diet, is a different because it's not your typical diet book. It focuses on the power that you have in your world. Rather than following some artificial guidelines or avoidance of any one particular food or food group, it's a, it's a self-help book focusing on the power that you can have to become a healthier you. Definitely needed by everyone I know. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Linda, take a couple of paragraphs or a couple of sentences and introduce your book, No Time for Diets, to my listeners and get them interested in getting their own personal copy. Well, I, I believe that um, that No Time for Diets is, is the voice of sanity in, in the world of misinformation. It, it provides a path to permanent changes in habits, and it provides a wealth of information on, on sound nutrition principles so that people can actually achieve a healthy lifestyle and, and successful weight management that lasts. Excellent. The title of the book, again, is No Time for Diets. My guest has been author and several other designations, L. Rains, that's Linda, last name spelled R-A-Y-N-E-S. So listeners, if you are looking for some good advice on addressing some problems with your diet, this is a book you need to get a copy of. It's only 145 pages, and Linda Rains has been my guest. Linda, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get the copies at Author House. Um, you can go online, authorhouse.com. It's in, available in hardcover, uh, paperback, and it's also available in ebook. Do you have a website yet that deals with nutritional things? I have a website. I'm in the process of working with Author House. Um, we're trying to link both sites. So my, my website is um, notimefordiets.com. Excellent. Should be easy to find, and they can keep in touch and learn some excellent tips on how to have a better lifestyle. Thank you, Linda, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. I much appreciate it. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.